Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. In this episode, I have a very special guest with me. I have a good friend and mentor, Dr. Mario Garcia, president and founder of the Neurostrategic Coaching Institute. Dr. Mario, welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. Thank you so very much, Victor. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with you on your projects, and thank you for allowing me to share time with your listeners. Excellent. I've always wanted you to be on this podcast specifically. I know I had you on the last one, but since this podcast inception, I always wanted to bring in the perspective of where I learn a lot of my coaching skills and where I fine tune the things that I use each and every day with people. You are the founder of the Neurostrategic Coaching Institute. What inspired you to start your own institute? What inspired me was the need of many individuals who came to us. And when I mean us is our organization, the Brain Health Center, internal impact through our coaching and or clinical type of services. And we saw the need of being able to transfer the knowledge that we've unpacked and share that with many individuals, as many people, because I'm one and my son, we work together. I had the pleasure. I initially started 30 years ago. My son joined me about six years ago. But we realized very quickly the power of the gifts and the skills that God had given us. And we said, we need to share this with others. Absolutely. And it's I always make this joke when I'm talking about you to other people. But I always tell them that Dr. Mario was doing coaching before it was cool. <laughs> so <laughs> over 30 years of coaching experience. And I know you came from the world of academia. You came from a faith-based background as well. So you've had both of those backgrounds, academia and religion. Where did coaching come in and harmonize with what you had practiced previous to it? It actually was in 19, I would say 1976, 78, when I first joined the United States Army. Mm -hmm. So I've got that military background nearly two decades as well. Yes. Uh, There was this gentleman who was my first three-stripe sergeant. I joined the Army when I was 17, Mm -hmm. a very young age. And (laughs) my first assignment was Germany. (laughs) I remember my first Christmas. I cried like a little girl (laughs) because it was my first time that I was number one in the military, number two in a foreign country, Mm -hmm. and my first Christmas all by myself. I was 17 years of age. My sergeant that was assigned to me, his name was Tommy Tucker. Yes. And I was an infantry soldier when I first joined. It wasn't like later in my career where I became an aviator and was a captain and all of those wonderful things that I experienced. Mm-hmm. Early on, I was a rifleman. I was an infantry soldier. They call them 11 Bravos. Mm-hmm. And Sergeant Tommy Tucker really took me under his wing. And he did the unexpected. He asked me a question, a very powerful mm-hmm. question. He says, why are you here? And I really mm-hmm. had to think about that. Do I give him <laughs> the answer that he wants to hear or did I tell him my truth? Yes. And so I said, well, number one, I'm here to serve my country, but I'm also here to get educated. I, mm. w- I want to get a, an education. I want to go to school. I, I finished my high school diploma and my parents didn't have the finances to send me to college. And that's why I'm here. And he says, if you really and truly want to get an education, I will do everything possible to support that goal. And in fact, he did. And again, most people that are familiar with the military know that number one, you're always moving. Yes. For me, it was every two years in my first 10 years mm. in the United States Army. And number two, it becomes a little difficult to sustain any kind of a undergraduate program if you're in the infantry. You're a soldier. You're consistently training to, to defend your country and that sort of thing. But he did something very amazing. He said, I need you to go to the Army Education Center. I need you to register over there as a student, and they will then tell you what all the programs are available to you. Mm -hmm. And so I did that very quickly in the next couple of days during my processing in country. And I came back to him and I said, look, they've got three universities here that are universities from the United States, and they offer programs to soldiers. I chose one of them. However, they require that I attend Tuesday nights and Thursday nights. And I know During the week, most of the times we're in the field, we're conducting field exercises. Mm -hmm. And he said, how is that a problem? And I go, wait a minute, what kind of a question is that? (laughs) (laughs) You want to be in two places at once. (laughs) Right. Fast forward to 1992 when I first Mm -hmm. got, was exposed to coaching. That's a typical coaching question. He wasn't my coach. Mm -hmm. He wasn't even my mentor. He was my direct supervisor. He was a sergeant. Yes. But it was as if he was coaching me. And I said, if I'm in the field, how am I going to get into the classroom? He said, okay, how about 
If you commit to the program, I will allow you to use my Jeep driver, my personal Jeep driver. He'll bring you in from the field training exercise. You go to classroom and he'll take you back out. Mm. And he did that for two years. Wow. By the time I left Germany, I almost had an associate's degree by going to school at night. It was the most powerful thing ever. And then I really wasn't exposed to coaching until 1992. I had, in 1990, as you had won the 10 Outstanding Young Person of the World Award Mm -hmm. for Moral and Environmental Leadership. And that put me on a speaking circuit. I, from 90 to 95, I must have gone about 45 countries. Yes. Speaking about leadership and training and that sort of thing. Well, in 92, there was this group of four individuals from four different countries, Venezuela, China, the UK, and uh, New Zealand. Bill Potter from New Zealand was at the award ceremony in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1990 when I won the award. And he remembered he saw me at this event where I had been asked to chair this consortium of adult education mm-hmm. and global education. Where was adult education going? And he said to me, Dr. Mario, I want you to participate in our first coach training program. And I go, what is that? <laughs> what do you mean a coach? I was familiar like everyone else yes. in sports. Yeah, you're yeah. going to have me coach Little League? Is that what's going <laughs> yeah, on? For real. <laughs> And it was interesting because it was an organization. The Junior Chamber International is an organization that is uh, comprised of young men and women, 18 to 40. Mm -hmm. And I said, tell me more. And he did. And I became part of the first coach certification program. It was an international program called Prime Mm -hmm. Coaching Certification Course. I went through the program. And at the end of the program, I obviously got certified. He says, how would you like to be part of the coach training team. Mm. And I said, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) Now then I knew some coaching language. Yes. And of course he said, we've created an advanced program that's called Excel. Mm -hmm. And we're going to conduct that program. I think it was about 60 days from that time frame. He says, once you complete that program, we'd love for you to become part of the coach education panel. Mm. And the rest is history. Since 1992, actually it was in Hong Kong where I took my first coaching education program. Again, in the next years, I was, oh my goodness, in so many countries doing it both in English and Spanish, training coaches, developing leaders. And so in 1993, I retired from the United States Army and went immediately into coaching and consulting and training. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, that journey. And one thing that I I couldn't help but notice is is the way that the journey began. When you were asked by Sergeant Tommy Tucker what you wanted or why you were there. What's interesting is you and I, before this recording, we were talking about the Zen Stoic intentions as well as the delusions. And one of the intentions is sincerity. One of the delusions is performance. And it would have been really easy for you to just say the right thing, quote unquote, and performed to tell him what he wanted to hear. But instead you started off with a sense of sincerity. And it's almost as if by beginning your endeavor with sincerity, it took you as far as you were able to go. Whereas if you had just performed in that moment and not been vulnerable or put yourself on the line to say what you actually felt, that could have taken you in a completely different direction. Oh, absolutely. It it may have taken me in a direction that I would not possibly be here today. Yes. And and I like what you said because the good book says the truth shall set you free. and, And that's exactly what happens when you're vulnerable and sincere and can share the truth in its purest form. Yes. Because I shared with him, I am here to serve my country, but I also, and I also Mm -hmm. want to get my education because there was no way that I could have done that in Puerto Rico, where I was from with the finances and the way the country was at the time. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to think about that because in coaching, where it has some parallels with stoicism, just for instance, is that in coaching, I know from my experience working Um, with you as well as sharing some clients with you. One thing that we always run into is a person's emotions overpowering them. And in Stoicism, they talk a lot about how we want to have our mind that is stronger than our emotions. In other words, be able to overcome them. Sometimes that gets lost in translation where some people take it as being emotionless. 
which is not necessarily a good thing either. But prior to this recording, while we were having lunch, and it was an amazing lunch, by the way, Puerto Rican food <laughs> just blew me away. But we were talking about this idea of how people do emotions. We all feel emotions involuntarily at first, but then when we continue, now we're doing them. We're in this state, in this pattern. So what? how does that come up in coaching? And how do you typically help people or teach people to help others regarding emotions that we are quote unquote doing? It comes up in coaching and it also comes up as we have a brain health center. So we mm -hmm. actually have a clinical therapy track. Yes. Uh, it, it is a very small one, I will tell you. <laughs> but there are folks that need that kind of assistance and support. Maybe they're dysfunctional. Maybe they're having some challenges, whatever the case may be. When... Ever I hear someone talking about I'm depressed, mm. I will ask the question, are you depressed or are you doing depression? Mm. And I get this blank stare a lot, nine times out of 10. All right, because some people feel like it's this external force that has taken control of their lives, well, like they're a prisoner to the emotion. Yes, because they're in the effect and they're not at cause. So when you're in the effect, you're either blaming people, mm -hmm. you're blaming locations, or you're blaming other things. Yes, events, things yeah. outside of your world. Outside of your control. Mm -hmm. And while people are busy doing that, they're not accepting their responsibility in their emotions that they are doing because you actually are doing them. It's a decision. It's an action mm -hmm. or inaction that you take. Yes. And then obviously it results in physiology, which results in behavior, as many people know. Mm -hmm. And so doing depression, doing grief, doing sadness, doing anger, when I'm very concerned and, and I'm not just saying as a country, I'm concerned as a world and global citizen mm -hmm. that we attribute these emotions to external forces. Yes. And when you're attributing things to external forces, you're not accepting responsibility, your personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. So take, for example, if a husband and wife have an argument yes. and anger comes up as an emotion, Mm -hmm. and you hear him or her say, you're making me angry. Yes. That's not accepting your role and responsibility in this circumstance. Mm. To accept that responsibility, you have to move yourself to cause because if we understand the way the brain works, mm -hmm. either you control your mind or your mind controls you. Yes. Either you program your own mind and reprogram it daily. It's a constant daily. You got to be the watch person on the wall. That's right. <laughs> it's a consistent effort. It's not a one and done. <laughs> not a one and done. It's every day you've got to wake up in the morning and hopefully you wake up with passion, mm -hmm. doing what you love to do with the freedom that you can say, today, I will control my mind and my mind will not control take control of me. And that requires us to really audit ourselves yes, and see what it is that we are doing and how we're doing it. Not the why. Notice I didn't say why. If you look into your past and, and you start asking yourself, well, why did I do this or why did I do that? You may never find the answer. It's like going down a rabbit hole trail. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the how, what are the strategies that you utilize to do sadness, to do anger? When you're going into a parking lot at Walmart mm -hmm. and all of a sudden somebody cuts you off. Yes. That moment of decision can either send one type of chemical into your brain mm -hmm. or the other. Which yes. one do you choose? And many people may perhaps not understand that. It's similar to when you have a loss of life. And I understand, believe me, because when COVID first happened, I lost two aunts mm -hmm. in New York City. None of us in the family, none of us, not even the extended family, yes. were able to go to New York City and travel and respect, pay our respects or anything like that. So I certainly understand However, we can do grief in a way that doesn't overpower us. Yes. Because the unconscious mind, which controls the body, mm -hmm. is ready, willing, and able to heal itself when you consciously and unconsciously agree to do that. Yes. And we've worked with clients, many clients, as you that have had losses or have been through major traumas. And when we share with them, which goes back to your initial question, why is it that we founded the training institute mm -hmm. when we are able to teach them the concepts of neuro-linguistic programming and how quantum time techniques work mm -hmm. coupled with creative visualization, then that's a different story. 
Yes. They go, ah, now I see it. Now I can see the trigger and I don't have to react. I don't have to respond. Yeah. And that's really similar to there. There's a concept in stoicism talked about by the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, where he says, you don't have to have an opinion on things. You don't have, you're not obligated to have an opinion on everything. And it's as if we, as a society, generally speaking, it's almost like we feel obligated to react to things that make us feel anything unpleasant. And the truth is you have a choice in the matter. Like you may not control a lot, but there are very few things that you can control that make all the difference, especially when doing emotions. And the challenge is, as you, from the work that we've done together, is that when you're doing emotions, you're typically operating out of the amygdala. Yes. Fight, <laughs> flight, freeze response. Mm-hmm. And not out of your frontal lobe executive brain. So the judgment is not as clear as you would want it to be. Yes. Because you respond based on that, re, you know, that reaction, that emotion, you get what you get. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. One thing that I've always wanted to ask you about, because this is something that I've encountered in my own coaching practice. I've encountered it when studying both Zen and Stoicism is this idea that I've started to look at emotions as not necessarily good or bad, positive or negative. In other words, removing the judgment from them and almost seeing them as signals that are trying to tell you something. Either they're trying to tell you you need to change something or they're telling you keep doing this thing or appreciate this thing, whatever that might be. When a person is stuck in that emotional state, when they're doing sadness and they're operating out of the amygdala and it's almost as if they can't see anything else, how does a person stop judging the feeling and start to actually make a change or, or at least accept the signal for what it is so that they can move to a better state. How might somebody do that if they feel stuck in it? If somebody gets really angry and all they can see is through their anger, how might somebody catch themselves there? So typically we will hear this a lot. So mm. the metaphor is really good, like being stuck or, or drowning, if you will. Mm. And so people are like gasping for air or they'll say freedom. I just want to be free. I feel like I'm stuck. I'm not getting anywhere, whether it's in the job or in the business, resulting in perhaps what many people today will refer to as brain fog. Mm. The human response, the automatic human response will want to be to grasp at anything that will give them air if they're stuck. And the challenge is there's no quick fix. And I know that one of your principles in Zen Stoicism addresses that on point. I, I love it because when you try to get a microwave fix, mm-hmm. you want it now. The delusion of expediency. <laughs> the delusion of expediency will <laughs> typically backfire on you. Yes. Because there's a natural barrier mm-hmm. from someone who wants to go, let's say, from water. Let's use that as a metaphor. The element, I'm drowning. Mm-hmm. I'm stuck directly to air. You must recognize that what happens there is there's an automatic barrier that kicks you back into stuck. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of those things that people typically do? They will typically go for medication. And again, I'm not against medication. I want to make that point very clear. There's some people who need it. If you need it and your medical doctor diagnosed it, that's between you and and your physician. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that sometimes we adhere to temporary fixes. Let's call it that. Yes that will kick you back into stuck and people going to therapy for three, four, five, ten 10 years. Mm-hmm. I would say to you, the answer is quickly becoming aware mm-hmm. of what is the root cause of your problem. Yes. Not why you're stuck. What is the root cause of your problem? And it's going to require some action. So you're going to have to go through the fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to have to walk through the fire, yes. which means you're going to need to take action in order to then get some grounding on mm-hmm. that earth element mm-hmm. Okay, before you can go out there and get some air. And so that's the process that we take individuals through in our no-linguistic programming as you know, our breakthrough to freedom in our mm-hmm. coaching programs. It's all geared to give you insight of how the mind operates and how to be aware of the languaging. Mm-hmm. And the installation and the programming that's out there. And I'm not just going to say in America. I'm, I'm saying globally. Yes. You, you, we've experienced it. I've been to 57 countries. Mm-hmm. One thing that I can tell you that I've learned, the distinction is that people are people. That's right. Doesn't matter <laughs> who they are. 
doesn't matter their religion, doesn't matter their sex, doesn't matter their, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. People are people and people do emotions. Yes. And so what's interesting is if you are attempting to get unstuck mm-hmm. and you're using all of these temporary fixes, what's happening is, is it's what we call secondary gain. And I know you and I are experts mm. in that. We can bring that into the conversation. <laughs> oh, I'd love to. <laughs> because I think it's going to be helpful to our listeners. Yes. But what does secondary gain actually do for you? It gives you some temporary pleasure at the expense mm-hmm. of a huge cost of, for pain, psychological pain. Yes. Or maybe pain in the health in the future. That's right. Yeah. And just for those of you who are unfamiliar with that term, secondary gain, this is actually something that goes on when you are maybe exhibiting an undesirable habit, behavior, emotion on a consistent basis. You think to yourself that, oh, this thing that I'm doing that I don't like does nothing for me and I wish I didn't have it. But the reality is, as human beings, we don't hold on to things that are useless to us. And just because they're not pleasant doesn't mean they're useless. You might be intending something by holding on to, let's say, the emotion of anger or depression or grief. Perhaps the secondary gain when you get angry is that now people are paying attention to me. I don't like getting angry, but at least I get people paying attention to me. So when we say secondary gain, it's to ask yourself, what is this behavior, habit, emotion? What is it giving me? What is it? How is it benefiting me? And you might not phrase it as benefiting, (laughs) (laughs) but what is it giving me? What am I intending? And most of us, the biggest problem that I find that we run into when it comes to secondary gain is we don't want to necessarily admit that we're gaining something from this thing that is causing so many problems. But the funny thing is that the moment you admit it to yourself and you realize what the actual intention is behind it, you can either change the intention or you can find a better way to fulfill that intention. I I totally agree with you there, Victor. And I think that we must also tie in, and I don't know how much time we have on this podcast, but I got to tell you you that what came to mind and you talked about before we went on the air, uh, the delusions, four delusions, I I think there's another one that we can add it, and it's that mask, that persona. Performance delusion is crazy when people are attempting to use that one driver, that one thing Mm -hmm. in order to satisfy. And that's perhaps why they go into that secondary gain mode. Mm -hmm. You know, that significance or that certainty or that variety or that connection and love. And they're trying to satisfy all four of those human needs Mm -hmm. with that one thing. Yes. It, it, it perhaps may give you some temporary satisfaction, mm-hmm. but it's what's going to keep you stuck in that cycle. Correct. Yeah. It's almost like you, you're trying to find comfort in that cycle rather than figuring out the way out. Which brings me to another question because I think some of the people listening to this, we mentioned therapy briefly. We've talked a little bit about coaching and you were saying that there's a small part of your practice that includes therapy, but it's not the majority of it. For those listening who don't really know the difference between the two, what is the difference between therapy and coaching? Okay. If you think of, let's start off with coaching. In coaching, we're not going to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. It's it's a collaborative experience for the person being coached to achieve their goals. We don't tell you what those goals are. We In our practice, we use what we call evidence-based criteria. Mm -hmm. We have certain assessments. We want to determine where are you in that goal chase, if you will, Mm -hmm. and where do you want to be to achieve it? And uh, typically it's taking a look forward in your life. It's not looking rearward as to why this event happened to you or why this emotion is driving you where you are. In, In coaching, there's a lot of accountability. In coaching, we collaborate, we partner with you. And in, in therapy, we're looking to diagnose. In coaching, we're not. In therapy, typically, there's going to be a DSM-5, a Diagnostic 5 label. There's going to be some criteria that you're going to meet. In coaching, we're going to treat the whole person. We're going to look at what we call the wheel of life. Mm-hmm. What's going on in your relationship? What's going on in your profession or your business? What's happening in your personal growth and development? What's going on in your physical health? And kind of take a look at that full package. Yeah, it's a, like a holistic approach. It's a completely holistic approach. And, it, and it's a, a, a distinct body of personal growth and development mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that allows you to work with someone where they're not going to tell you what to do. They're not going to judge you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that therapists will judge you, but by the simple notion of me, for example, if you came to my office, Victor, and you said, I, I want therapy, I'm going to have to ask you certain questions to see if you fit the box. Mm-hmm. And then put you in the box. Yes. Oh, you are depressed. If you've been depressed for more than six months, then it's major depression, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Again, not saying that's bad, but just saying, we're not going to put you in a box in coaching. Yes. You're going to be able to fly as far, as high, and as fast as you want to. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying that it's an easy process because there's a lot of accountability and you've got to do the work. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. the co- coaching is a partnership. It's a do-with-you process versus a do-to-you process. And that is the biggest distinction between coaching and therapy. Mm-hmm. I always, anytime a client ever asks me, I always say, yeah, therapy asks the question, what happened? Why did it happen? Coaching is, what do you want now and in the future? Yes. So, so it's often progressive in terms of its direction rather than sitting and understanding. But it, it reminds me of this, this one quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, who he's known as the calmest man in the world. <laughs> but he has this uh, very interesting quote, and I'll paraphrase it. I've definitely talked about it on the podcast before, but he says, a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Just like the knowledge or what is being taught is not the truth, it just points to it. So if you have a raft and you take the raft to get from one side of the riverbank to the other side of the riverbank, once you get to the other side, you don't keep carrying the raft on your head. So my question on this regarding therapy is that therapy obviously has its use and its purpose and its place. When does therapy become carrying the raft on your head? (laughs) (laughs) When does it become carrying the raft on your head? I'd like to think that my colleagues and fellow therapists, and and I got to tell you, I train therapists at the doctoral level uh, for a particular university that I serve as a, a professor, assistant professor of behavioral sciences with. And the model that we use there, and I don't know if you want to use the discarding of the raft <laughs> with this model, is a short, brief term counseling yes. model. It, it's very similar mm-hmm. in purpose to coaching. Yes. In, in coaching, we want you to be able to pick yourself up, take your tools, and go. Yes. And what I've seen in many individuals from personal experience that have come to me after four or five years of therapy that after 14 or 15 hours Mm -hmm. of an intensive program, they're able to buy a bigger ship. Yes, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) They can carry on. (laughs) So they can carry on, forget the raft, forget the pontoon. They're they're like in a 52 foot yacht (laughs) doing their thing. And and it's not everyone, but uh, what I'm saying is you're able to see the distinctions of individuals that I would even say some are conditioned to come through a therapeutic process because of the availability of the information. Now Mm -hmm. you can go online and hire a therapist online. And again, some people will need that. Yes. Yeah. And it it has, you know, it It has has its place. place. It has its purpose. No doubt about it. But what I'm saying is that if I can share this with you, 31 years of doing coaching and leadership and mentoring. Mm -hmm. And I have a postdoctorate in neuropsychology, and I'm not saying this to boast my credentials at all, but just to make a point. Doctorate in in postdoctorate neuropsychology, master's in counseling, et cetera, and a couple of other doctorates as well. Out of everything that I have learned, and I have learned with the best, my postdoctorate, Victor, Mm -hmm. experience with Fielding University, was with Alan Mursky. And Alan Mursky was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda. Mm-hmm. That's, that was my mentor when I went through the program that I completed in 2006. This is a guy that worked on monkeys to determine the cure for petty mouth seizures. Mm-hmm. This is the type of brain. I, I'm not that guy. <laughs> but he was my mentor. Yes. After all of these things that I learned from the greats, Mm -hmm. I use coaching primarily in my practice because I see results. That's right. Much faster. I see people empowered. Mm -hmm. And and of course, if you're in therapy X amount of years, even if you have insurance, there's going to be some copay. That's right. 
But that may be minimal mm-hmm. compared to the psychological cost of you carrying and doing those emotions mm-hmm. for three, five, ten years. Right. I've encountered as you, I've worked with individuals who have been grieving the loss of their children for seven, ten years mm-hmm. and completely dysfunctional in their churches, in their businesses, in their different relationships, etc. And all of a sudden, in 14, 15 hours, they set themselves free. Yes. So when I see that, I go, wait a minute. I'm going to do what's right. Yes. I'm going to work with these individuals, and this is why we do what we do at Neurostrategic Coaching Institute. Yes. And I noticed in our industry, the coaching industry, one thing that I've always seen a problem in is that there are people who claim to be coaches, yet their model seems to take on that model of, let me just try and keep them as long as possible in this coaching. Almost like that (laughs) therapy model (laughs) that you were alluding to before, generally speaking. So when, and again, that would be falling under the delusion of control and expediency. You're trying to maybe make the quick buck, maybe trying to control and give yourself some certainty and reassurance that you're going to have this client long term. What do you think it is that makes the difference between somebody who is a true coach who operates from a place of sincerity and somebody who operates like that? One word, results. Yes. (laughs) That's the bottom line. But let me address this because my son and I have been working together six years and coach Mario, my son, and they call me Dr. Mario because we're both Mario. And you and I have had this conversation before when we have individuals that are calling themselves coaches Mm -hmm. and it's a unregulated industry and i'm not asking for it to be regulated by no means then anyone can call themselves a coach so now you have individuals who are independent distributors for product a or product b Mm -hmm. you have people in in gyms and maybe if they're personal trainers maybe they can call themselves coaches and i'm saying maybe (laughs) okay they can be great personal trainers but that doesn't make you a coach you can be a great salesperson that doesn't make you a coach but we have a lot of organizations and companies now that are calling certain categories of employees coach Mm. and they have absolutely no coach training yes and it's a disservice to the profession because this is a profession our school and neurostrategic coaching institute is accredited by the international coaching federation which is the gold standard that's Mm. how we make sure that we meet certain criteria and of course we have our own brand neurostrategic coach yes When I sign someone's certificate, I am saying this individual can go out there and get results because the assessments, the evidence-based criteria tools that we use, the modalities that we teach, coupled with the neuro-linguistic programming, et cetera, creative visualization, are able to help that coach to help others to get them the results they need. And essentially, all of the assessments basically take the guessing out of the coaching. Yes. Which is huge for us. Because there becomes a high degree of precision as well as the actual processes that work and that are proven to create these results. And I got to tell you, Victor, and you know this to be true, that many of the individuals that come to our coaching program don't necessarily want to be coaches. We've had attorneys, we've had pharmacists, Mm -hmm. we've had nurses, moms, dads that just want to be better communicators, learn how the mind works, learn how to ask powerful questions mm-hmm. and not be manipulated, not be influenced, not be programmed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one, one thing that I've noticed from you and that I've learned from you that I've applied into my own coaching practice is that there are a lot of people in this industry who are experts at what they do and then they call themselves coaches but what they're doing is not really coaching. They're more so instructing or teaching or they're consulting. It's not necessarily falling into coaching. And I, what I noticed, the big thing that separates somebody who is genuinely coaching and then somebody who is calling themselves a coach. And, and again, those who call themselves a coach and who are doing those other things, it's not like they're not creating results, but we can't necessarily say that it's the craft of coaching. Where the distinction comes for me actually comes from a lecture that Alan Watts was doing way back when, where he was talking about meeting and speaking with Carl Jung. And what he would describe that Carl Jung's almost like his superpower was as a psychologist is that he had within him almost like this look in his eye that he knew 
that he was somewhat of a rascal, no matter how prestigious <laughs> he was. And that acceptance of his own, his own self, his own flaws, almost transferred over and allowed the other person across from him to feel accepted, to feel safe, to be vulnerable. Whereas there's a lot of intellectuals who their intelligence and their expertise almost intimidates the people across from them because there's almost like this lack of acceptance of that part of themselves, uh, as Alan Watts would call it, the irreducible rascality within mm-hmm. us all. <laughs> so I noticed this way before we ever had a conversation about it, that you are a person and a coach who people are able to feel very safe to be vulnerable and feel accepted around you. Is that something that has always been the case throughout your coaching or where was there a moment where your mentality changed over to that? When I look back at my coaching career and in leadership, I believe I picked this up when I was in the military. Being vulnerable, there's vulnerable, there's power in vulnerability. And of course, through my faith and faith practice as well. When I was in the military, there was a point in time late in my career where I became a commander, mm-hmm. a company commander of an aviation unit. And I walked into the unit as soon as I received command and you're assigned a, what they call a first sergeant. And that first sergeant has been in the military more than 20, 25 years. And he shared a piece of information with me that stuck with me throughout mm-hmm. and has until this day. He said, people will respect your rank because of the nature of your rank, mm-hmm. but they will respect you based on how you conduct yourself. Yes. And they will know if you're sincere or they will know if you're using your power to overpower them. Mm-hmm. And there's a distinction between overpowering someone and influencing them in a positive way so that they too can grow. Yes. And because of that conversation, I approached my job as a commander of 150 men and women completely mm-hmm. differently. Yes. And it was amazing. As a matter of fact, I was looking at a photograph just yesterday of my turning in that command. It was 33 years ago. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it came up on Facebook, which is crazy. And so it's the principle, number one, that I live by. You cannot give what you do not have. Mm. Number two, you cannot lead someone if you're not willing to do that, what you're asking them to do. Yes. So if I'm asking a person being coached or or a client, to be vulnerable, to trust the process of coaching in this case, then I believe that they need to see that in me. They need to see that sincerity in me. And so when we talk about being a student or being a master, Mm -hmm. you know, we teach this and you you do a very good job of talking about those different levels of communication is my life has had a series of challenges Yes, and we've overcome by the grace of God because of our family, because of our values, and thanks to one of my mentors who, who worked with me at an event. Mm-hmm. And the reason why these coaching processes work is because you're asking the client to trust you. And during that relationship and that establishing that rapport, they must see the sincerity in you. Mm-hmm. They must know at some point, and this, it's not like we're having a 30-minute coaching conversation and 28 of it is telling you all about me. No, all <laughs> contraire. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's 80% them, 20% you, and, you, and your 20% is basically just asking the powerful questions and getting mm-hmm. them to where they want to go. But for me, it's, it's about them knowing the fact that I too have had challenges. Yes. You know, I grew up in New York City till I was 12. At the age of nine, I was a shoeshine dude mm-hmm. on the corner of 115th and 2nd Avenue. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. When my parents pulled me out of New York City, it was during the civil rights craziness mm-hmm. and the drug wars in New York City, and, and they took us back. My, my brother and I, he was newborn. They took us to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. When I went to Puerto Rico, the economy was in devastation as well. Mm-hmm. So after school, I had to go and shy choose in the <laughs> town square, and I did that. I'm not afraid to say this is where I came from. Mm-hmm. I went through the United States Army. I was an enlisted person for six and a half years before I became an officer. And one of the accolades that many of the 
officers and, and non-commissioned officers would always say is we can appreciate when someone has been a Mustang. And, and in the Navy, they call Mustangs individuals who have been enlisted persons first mm-hmm. and then become an officer. And I went through the officer candidate school in the U.S. Army and then became a second lieutenant. And it's because you know what it took to get there. Yes. And I think that many people today want to to get the quick fix, the microwave solution, and get to where they want to be without doing the work. It requires work. Mm-hmm. I still do the work. I still do the research. One of the things that keeps me humble mm-hmm. is the ability to continue to learn. Yes. I, I've learned from you. To always be a student. Yeah, absolutely. Be a student for life. Mm-hmm. Be a lifelong learner, and you will do fine. Yes. And I always be curious. Empty think, your cup. <laughs> think that you've arrived mm-hmm. and you're going to start having some challenges. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's called pruning. <laughs> Anytime you think that you've made it or that you're there, you're not. <laughs> and then you start to, in essence, regress yeah. into that. So there's something that you had mentioned earlier, and I'm sure people heard this and they got intrigued and they were curious. But you talked about quantum timeline techniques. Oh, wow. So would you mind going into that and basically what it is, why you would use it, or in what scenario would you use it, and what the effect is? Quantum timeline techniques is a is a version, a derivative, if you will, of a process that one of my mentors, the late Tad James, created. He called it timeline therapy. Mm-hmm. And, and timeline therapy wasn't really therapy at all, but that's the name he gave to it at the time he created it. NLP and other folks had looked at therapy when John Grinder and Richard Bandler mm-hmm. more than three decades ago created neurolinguistic programming NLP. They basically looked at what are these five powerful therapists doing Yes, that is getting them these unique results. Mm-hmm. And then they modeled that. And that's yes. why NLP is called the modeling of excellence. Yes. And then some others came around, Judith Delosier, Robert Diltz, and, and others behind them. We're now in the midst of what we're calling NLP 4.0. It's taking research based on what we've been able to do in the last four or five years with NLP and saying, how can we take it to the next level? And in short, what quantum time techniques allows us to do is to work with a client that has suffered significant negative emotions also known as traumas, right? (laughs) Whether they're an accumulation of small events or major traumas, veterans that have gone through combat and come out with post-traumatic stress disorder. We've worked with women who've been rescued from illegal sexual trafficking. We've worked with uh, youth with attempted suicide and other issues. And we're able to look at what we call the big six, anger, sadness, fear, hurt, guilt, and shame. Yes. And... We were able through this process without having the client go into the story and re-experiencing the significant negative emotions. Mm -hmm. We're able to get them through a process that allows them to exchange the negative energy Mm -hmm. of that emotion from the root cause. And the root cause could be when they were three, when they were five, could be in the womb. We've had people report previous generations, generational curses, whatever the case may be. We Mm. don't argue with the client. Whatever the client says is right. And we have them get the learnings from that root cause and clear all that negative emotion in the anger, sadness, fear, guilt, shame Mm -hmm. until now, until that process. Yes. And we've seen it work time after time, 100% success rate. Yes. And that's not boasting. If the client is totally participating, involved, surrenders to the process, we've seen individuals. I've seen a a woman, Coach Mario was doing a demonstration, working with a client in one of our programs where at the age of three, she was unfortunately touched inappropriately. Mm -hmm. She was a child. Yes. She never remembered that. But throughout her lifespan, she had experienced multiple partners. She had experienced addictions. Mm -hmm so many different things and when she came through our program and coach did the quantum time on an event yes after the event was over you could see the shift 
mm-hmm. in her physiology, the weight off her shoulders. Yes. And then she reported to us what she said. Mm-hmm. I never remembered this. Mm. But the unconscious mind is the memory keeper. Yes. Remembers everything. It remembers everything, no matter what. And we've seen it time and time again. We've had individuals who have had so many negative traumas that they've experienced fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, even cancer. And after 15, 17 hours of process, it's the beginning of a journey to release those negative emotions and a path toward healing. Yes. And I got to tell you, one of our our greatest testimonies, uh, Master Coach Kelly Cannon, a teacher here in Florida, and she's given us authorization to share this. When she came to us more than 19 months ago, she had full-blown multiple sclerosis. Yes, I remember. And within 16 months, symptom-free. Yeah, you would never know. But she did I met her after. Yeah. When you guys told me that, I was like, what? <laughs> it was crazy, but it, she did the work to do that. She did the work. She went through all of our programs. She did the work back home. She's applied the knowledge. She's become a master of her own mind. Mm-hmm. And again, we're not here to tell you that anything that we do heals anybody. No, that's not what we're saying at all. But what we're saying is when you release those negative emotions, you're able to prevent mm-hmm. dis-ease. Yes. If you, if you look at Medicina Germanica, which is New German medicine, and the theories there, very powerful. Yes. The correlations between negative emotions and different diseases. They've done the research. They've done the studies, et cetera. We teach this in our master's program uh, in, in neurolinguistic programming certification. Mm-hmm. And time after time, we've seen so many things happen. And I know... That you've had your own personal experience with your dad. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I've told the story um, in the first few, ep- the first week that this podcast was out about the work that we did with my dad when he was diagnosed with melanoma. And I, I remember I was telling you at lunch. Sometimes I almost discredit the in my mind because of how effective it was and how quickly it worked. But I, I sometimes have to remind myself that a recovery like that is not a normal thing. That it worked because we did this this work and used the quantum timeline techniques. My dad is symptom-free with his melanoma a year later because he came at it from all angles. He didn't think that there was only one way of doing things. He did the quantum timeline techniques. He changed his diet. He did what the, the Western medicine doctors told him to do. He you know, reconnected with his faith. All these things that many people will tell you this is the only way to do it. He used all of them. He was open to every one of those experiences. And what I think is really interesting about the quantum timeline techniques, because I've used them very successfully with clients. I I use that in my liberation sessions that I conduct with clients. There's an alignment with Zen in in those techniques and that when you do the quantum timeline, we're not interested in the story of what happened when the first time you experienced this negative emotion that, that you're trying to resolve. Because in that state, a person has a direct experience with it. And in Zen, what creates noise in the mind is abstractions. The, in other words, dissociations or abstractions of the information where you start to try to tell a story about it and that just creates more noise. It doesn't solve anything, which is the point where I guess you would say the talk therapy <laughs> becomes carrying the raft on your head and we need to have a direct experience with this. But not only that, There's another piece in Zen that talks about what you resist will persist. So an emotion that you resist will persist. And what we've learned with quantum timeline techniques is that what you're reacting to in anger today is not actually reacting to what you're experiencing right in front of you. It's the first time you felt anger and never resolved it. Correct. That that has resisted (laughs) and persisted all throughout your life for decades. Absolutely. How is it that one day a 26-year-old wakes up, gets in his car and is driving, he's following a car that's in front of him, the car stops at the red light, and the light turns green after a couple of minutes, Mm -hmm. and the driver in the front car is probably texting or whatever, doesn't see it, and the gentleman gets out of his car, Mm -hmm. pulls the old man out of the car, and just starts to hit him because he's in anger. Yeah. That didn't just happen then. Something happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Way before at the root cause. Yes, he was not reacting to that because it's a disproportionate reaction to what's actually happening. Absolutely. And how do we know this story is because he was referred to us by a professional that made a referral. We worked with the individual and 
he went through our, our process, our program of neurolinguistic programming, et cetera. And I work with him privately as well. And no one in the course could believe that this had happened to this guy because he did tell them after the graduation mm-hmm. why he was there. Yes. He felt so released of all the anger that was built uh, up in his life throughout his lifespan. It's, uh, it's and amazing. then they called him a teddy bear. And he was. He was a great guy. Yeah. <laughs> Super affectionate, loving dude. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's crazy what some of this stuff can do, especially when, when you have direct experiences, when you stop resisting the emotions, when you actually allow them to process, you gain the wisdom from them that you can take with you and pass along to others that you love. One thing that I remember us talking about when I did the, the master's for NLP is you, you said something that I has always stuck in my mind. And this is a big claim, Uh oh. <laughs> but one of the biggest problems we face in this world is chronic dissociation. Can you speak a little bit to what chronic dissociation is and the effects that it has on a person? Sure. And I, I got to tell you, we, we see it quite a lot more today. We're talking how many months after the pandemic began. Mm-hmm. I can't even keep track. We're now getting phone calls of teenagers who are having suicidal ideations, mm-hmm. some who have attempted, adults that have left their partners or wives, so many different things. And when you're chronically dissociating, the individual that's having a conversation with you is basically speaking in abstract terms. Mm-hmm. And they're doing so in such a way that many even report that they don't even believe that they're in their own body. It's crazy, but the last few young persons that I've interviewed to see if they qualify for our program have expressed it in that, in, with that terminology, Victor. And maybe they're not chronically dissociated, but anyone that's highly dissociated is also speaking in abstract terms. The distinction is when you're able to say, I'm doing depression. And I've been doing depression because this and this happened. And you're able to reframe that. Did it happen to you or did it happen for you? Because most people think that negative events are happening to them. But out of every negative event that has happened in my life, if I look for the learning, Mm -hmm. then I can make the distinction that it's happened for me. And that from that point, it could be the trampoline that takes me to my next higher goal and compelling future. Yes. And that's a big distinction. Mm-hmm. So when individuals come to the office or whether we're doing a lot of Zoom these days. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a lot of virtual. A lot of virtual, of course. And we start having a conversation and asking them the coaching questions and we see that they're highly or chronically dissociated. We have to ask them for specifics. Yes. So just before you go into that, what would an example be of somebody that is chronically dissociated? How might they respond to certain questions? Typically, what we've experienced is, number one, they start off with blaming others. Mm -hmm. And so it's never about them. It's about my wife. It's about Trump. It's about Biden. It's about Mm -hmm. the government. (laughs) It's about Miami. Somebody else's fault. Somebody else's fault. Yes. So they start there. They may also talk about when you ask them what their goals are. They want to save the world. They want to rescue the world. Global. They'll talk, yeah. Very broad, very global. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, why are you here or who are you? Mm -hmm. You'll get the, I don't know who I am. And that's a very huge red flag for us. Yes. Because if you don't know who you are, you don't know what to do. Right. You're not basing... There's nothing to base your actions, decisions on. There's no purpose. There's no passion. And typically along with that is gone the will to live. Mm. That's what we're seeing in a lot of these young people. There's no purpose. There's no goal. The moment an individual says to themselves, nobody loves me, nobody cares. The next thing is what? Mm. Why am I here? Yes. And so in coaching, and this is a huge distinction, I'm going to determine what is this client's strengths? Matter of fact, mm. we conduct a strengths values inventory. Yes. We want to know their strengths. We want to know what are their core values. What were the values that they learned from their parents at age nine? Who did you have to be for your mother? Who did you have to be for your dad? 
Because once we determine what those strengths are, what was the number one strength? And they start saying, oh, my father taught me to work hard. But right now you're on the couch. (laughs) (laughs) You're dissociated from those values. You're dissociated from the values. You're in the secondary gain train. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Which means you're sacrificing your own character. Yes. That's how we know someone's out of alignment. Like they're when they're mm-hmm. pursuing that those human needs with just the one driver, the one thing, getting that secondary gain, but sacrificing at the expense of their core values and beliefs, we know they're out of alignment. Yes. So by by finding out what are their values, what are their strengths, mm-hmm. we now can show them something that came from them. Yes. That they've said, you know what? Hard work. That's a value. Love family they become reasons to live they become reasons to live before that all they were focused on was what was not being achieved mm. what was negative how they were feeling and yeah and, and when you're in that state you tend to be in marcus aurelius's words jerked around by the environment which we did, <laughs> we did an episode earlier this week on that exact thing where he talks about where he wrote in his meditations have an aim, have a purpose. If you're mm-hmm. jerked around by your environment, th- this is one of the things that leads to suffering. This is one of the things that you're just idling by. Absolutely. And thus, it's very easy to get dissociated. It's very easy to start speaking. I, I know one sign of dissociation in a person, because we talked about it here, is when somebody speaks in concepts. So you ask them how they're doing, and they respond to you with like, same shit, different day. Right. Or they respond with another day, another dollar. Mm-hmm. Or they're not actually saying to you how they feel. Exactly. <laughs> they're very dissociated from whatever that is. Yeah, a, a lot of people like to make the stop at procrastination station, I like to say. It's a very <laughs> popular station. Yes. <laughs> uh, if I can sit there and then jump into whatever is driving me to the secondary gain and hover there, avoiding the pain mm-hmm. of actually getting to the freedom. Yes. See, that's what most people don't recognize. If you would recognize the fact that while you're in that secondary gain or procrastinating and not doing the work, you're actually incurring Mm. an interest rate so high on your psychological state that it's like taking out a $2,000 credit card and making the minimum payment for the next 17 years. (laughs) Come on. Yeah. Yeah, you can't live like that. The cost is extremely high. Mm-hmm. I'll normally, and part of our conversation, once the client has engaged us, I would I will ask them, what will it cost you, physically, psychologically, or financially, if you continue to do what you've been doing? Mm-hmm. Where do you see yourself in the next five years, in the next ten years? Mm-hmm. Because if you don't get them to see the pain in the future today things will remain the same. That's right. Yeah, because people will respond to what's immediate, right? What What's in front of them now, which is the whole reason why we want to acknowledge emotions but not allow emotions to drive the train. And right. acknowledging them without judgment. Yes. Acknowledging them without blame. Social media is a great example of the blame game. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't stop. <laughs> Oh, my gets goodness. everybody up in arms with things that for the most part, I won't say this as an absolute, but for the most part, the stuff that you see on social media typically has nothing to do with you. It's not reality. It's your virtual reality. Right. Any one of your perceptions becomes your projection mm-hmm. and it's your virtual reality. It's we like to say in NLP, the map is not the territory. Yes. You know, just because you have this GPS and you put the address into the system and you start driving towards that direction, you may end up somewhere else. Yes. I know it's happened to me, baby. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So before we wrap up, I had one one question for you. I started asking this question with some of my guests. If, let's say, there are a lot of principles that you live by, right? Things that allow you to carry yourself, perform at the level that you do, as well as help all the people that you do. If you were to wake up one day and you'd lost all your memory, but you can keep one principle to help you rebuild, what would that be? Faith, faith. My faith has gotten us through so many challenges. Mm -hmm. As we lost a grandson in 2008. Yes. And I was at the pinnacle of my legal career and we had the coaching institute, we had five other businesses. And after his death, I was running for circuit court judge that year, actually. Mm -hmm. He died in the summer of 2008. In August was my election, I lost that as well. 
rightfully so, my focus was on my family. Yes. It was my, my second daughter, Erica's only son at the time, baby Tito. Mm-hmm. And in the next year, 2009, what happens? We get a financial crisis and all my businesses implode. <laughs> <laughs> we can laugh about it today because there were a lot of learnings, but yes. I got to tell you that we were there yes. and we went through it. What kept us moving forward was faith. Hmm. You've got to believe in the higher power. You've got to believe in yourself and you've got to believe the, that the people that you surround yourself with will be there even when the dust settles after everything implodes. Yes. And when we looked around, it was the family and it was certain key people in our lives that are there and are still here today. Yeah. And they got your back. And they have our backs. That's right. Dr. Mario, thank you so much for being on here. Where can the people find you if they're looking into getting educated as a coach or looking for a coach to, to be coached by? <laughs> they can check us out at neurostrategiccoach.com. That's our website. Everything is there. For those that might need the other side of our business, internalimpact.com, because we believe that we can co-create internal impacts for transformation. Yes. But our main page is neurostrategiccoach.com. You can check us out on Instagram. We're on Facebook, all social media. And it's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Victor, for inviting me to your show. Thank you. And we're here to support. Thank you. If, if you all found what Dr. Mario said valuable, definitely go visit him on his social media, on their website. And uh, we almost forgot to mention the new podcast that you're hosting, the Strategic Life Podcast. So, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, so be sure to go check that out if these principles and this information resonated with you. Yeah, it has its own website, strategicpodcast.com. We're... We just released episode 18, a three-part episode on relationships because we all do ships. That's right. (laughs) Beautiful. Dr. Mario, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much for being on the Zen Stoic Path. My pleasure.